You're listening to Pride Perspectives. On this show, we bring a rotating cast of Hofstra community members together to talk about their lived experience and areas of expertise. This fall, we've tackled topics ranging from motherhood and education to the 2020 election, hearing from experts on our campus for each. My name is Max Kutch, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're taking a break from heavier topics to talk about something a bit more fun. I'm joined today by Professor Paula Yurbiro from the English and Film Studies departments to talk about her areas of expertise in genre films, gender studies, and more. Uh, thank you for being with me today, Professor. Can you please just tell students who haven't taken a class with you before a bit about yourself, the classes you teach, areas of expertise, etc.? Sure. Um, well, my, my area of expertise in the literature side is American literature. Um, I've concentrated a lot on the gothic and the grotesque. Um, I've also done concentrated, uh, have a concentration in women's studies, 19th century, turn of the century, Gilded Age. Um, uh, it kind of goes all over the place. I mean, uh, because whatever interests me at the, t- at the time, if I'm interested in Edgar Allan Poe around Halloween, then I think of myself as, an, as a 19th century person. But if it's, if it's the 20th century, then I'm, I'm talking about Faulkner. So it really is uh, kind of the range of American literature. Um, and then in film studies, uh, I do I tend to do, do intro, to, intro to film studies courses, and then also authorship uh, or genre classes. So depending on the semester and the needs of the department. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by the gothic and the grotesque as a term? Sure. Um, the gothic is you know uh, it started out as an architectural style, and has over the years morphed into I think a very, a really interesting um, area of study, both in literature and film, uh, because if you, you talk about the traditional Gothic novels uh, that go back to uh, the early 1800s with the Castle of Otranto and some of those novels. But then I, I tend to, towards the American literature side. So when I talk about the Gothic, I'm talking about the, uh, the idea of the American Gothic which is slightly different from the British because in, in traditional Gothic, you have uh, the issue of the supernatural is generally not supernatural by the end of the novel. You have but settings that are taking place in gloomy abbeys and castles and uh, ancient curses, family curses, all of that kind of stuff. Um, attractive but dark villains, the damsel in distress, all of that as part of the Gothic, the tropes of the Gothic. Um, and when I talk about it in terms of American Gothic, uh, because we don't have castles and abbeys, we don't have that kind of history. So it's much more in terms of the Gothic almost becomes located in individuals. And I always say when I'm teaching that class that houses aren't haunted, people are. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, continuing in that sort of that, that area, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, horror films. We've seen a celebration of horror and horror-adjacent films critically in the last few years, uh, specifically at the Academy Awards with filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro, Jordan Peele, uh, at really high-profile wins and recognition. We've also seen horror-oriented directors like Scott Derrickson, Sam Raimi, David Sandberg taking on these bigger, uh, more mainstream project franchise films. Can you just talk a little bit about what makes the horror genre so unique and maybe where it might be heading in the future? Sure. I think, for one thing, I think that the horror genre is one of the most important genres. It gets maligned a lot and denigrated. I mean, you mentioned critical attention, finally. I mean, if you go back through the history, say, of of award-winning, Oscar-winning films, 
I think two, only there have only been two or three. And even when you talk about something like Silence of the Lambs, they try to cast it as a thriller, not a horror film. Um, and uh, very few actors get uh, nominated where I think there are some tremendous performances. You mentioned two of my favorite current directors, uh, Gamal del Toro and Jordan Peele. And I love teaching both Get Out and uh, del Toro, a number of his films. I'm teaching this semester, I'm actually teaching in fantasy and fairy tales, we did both The Shape of Water and um, Pan's Labyrinth, which are two very different kinds of films, but in both instances. And I think this is the appeal of horror films. And I think this is important. This is the essence of the horror film for me. The idea that um, <clears throat> we tend to define the other as a monster, as a monstrous figure. Uh, and for my, I like to, I got sort of follow Del Toro's philosophy that the monsters are generally the misunderstood characters in these films and the the true monsters are the humans again going back to that notion of you know the individual and what we identify as the other uh we it's it's as if we have to you know if you look at the current look at the current political state of america and this notion of the other is evil uh i think is has become such a predominant theme um so i i think that that is uh, the essence of horror, though, is that it gets, probably more than any genre, it really gets down to the human psyche. You know, what motivates us? Fear is such a great motivating factor in, people de in determining how people behave. And as far as, you know, trends and the future of it, I'm actually really happy uh, because it seems to me that we've gotten away from what I, you know, what I guess in the in the early 2000s was torture porn, you know, that kind of stuff, body horror, which is it's very effective, but it, and it's very visceral, but it's not, to me, it's not something that lasts. It's kind of like the, a jump scare, like, oh, that's horrible, or, oh, that's, but then it doesn't stay with you. And I think much more interesting are films like, um, like Hereditary, or uh, Get Out, or these films that cause you to think about them long after you've seen the film that, that are about deeper issues that are about cultural divides that are about the things that scare us uh the psychological horror that i think is much more interesting because it's much more effective i think anything that you're thinking about after you've left the movie to me means that it's a successful horror film yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that i uh i think the last movie i saw in theaters actually was robert eggers the lighthouse <laughs> okay um, which which was a which is a great which is a great theater experience uh, not not least because it was it began to torrentially downpour after I went into the theater so I came <laughs> out of the theater from like this rain lashed black and white boxy uh, yeah. film into like getting sprayed by a car uh, so that was really interesting and that's that's a film I think that that sort of defies um, categorization because it it it's like actually I I'd be here to, I'd be interested to, uh, are you familiar with Lighthouse? Sorry, this is completely Yeah, I did, I, did, uh, I did see Lighthouse, and it's a very interesting film because not only does it incorporate what I would call really old school, I mean, just as you said, the box, like the, the, the uh, ratio, the, uh, uh, the film ratio is uh, very old school, you know, going back to the 1920s and the black and white, um, and it kind of reinforces, again, what I said, uh, because you, t you take all you have are these two characters isolated in this in this lighthouse and the question is whether one or both of them are one is out of his mind or the both of them gradually 
fall into some kind of madness because of the isolation. Um, and I think that um, it was such a brilliant film, partly because of just the aesthetics of it, you know, putting, like you said, you, you, you feel, you felt cold. I felt cold and like wet watching that movie. It was, the atmosphere was so wonderfully created. And then the sound design, everything about it put you in that place. And I think that's another element that's, um, that makes that such an effective film. You feel like you're trapped in this lighthouse with these two maniacs, depending on who you want to believe or not believe. Uh, in, in that vein, uh, before we move on, do you have any personal favorite uh, horror films that you think are a little underwatched, perhaps? Oh, sure. There's tons of them. I mean, I that's my... <laughs> in fact, when I teach, I tend to... I know, it's, I, I know it's nice to watch something that you've seen and maybe study it critically, and I do that as well. But, for example, a great, I think, underwatched horror film is um, Near Dark, which is Catherine Bigelow. I like to... I always joke and I go, oh, wait, a woman director? Catherine Bigelow, who's, you know, she's probably best known for films like Zero Dark Thirty and some of those other uh, films that she did. But Near Dark is a great film. It came out in the 80s and it's a very Reagan era film um, and it defies categorization. If I categorized it for you, I would call it a gothic noir Western romance vampire film. Um, it's brilliantly done. The acting in it is terrific. Bill Paxton plays one of the best characters he's ever played in it. And it reverses gender, gender roles in it. It's just such a great film. And it's a lot of people don't know about it. It sort of um, has flown under the radar for a number of years. So that's definitely one I would recommend. And then the other films, I just, this semester in my fantasy and fairy tale class, I showed um, the 1932 the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which um, won an Oscar. It was the first horror Oscar for uh, the, the lead actor, Frederick March, who played the dual roles of Jekyll and Hyde. And even my students who had been familiar with some of the films of that period, like the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein, whenever they talk about the films of that pre-code Hollywood era, they always mention those are like the greatest hits and, the, and they said, how come this hasn't been included? Because this is a really good film. It's, and it is a good film. And I, that's another film I would recommend for people. If you've seen, you know, the Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, um, again, gets at the duality of human nature and the, the good and the evil. And it's kind of, it's, it's good science fiction. It's good fantasy. It's good horror. It's all those things. All right, so that's Near Dark and the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, correct? Yeah, from 1932. I mean, there's a silent film, too, that came before it, so. Ah, not, not the original original, then. Right, right. Uh, okay, I'm actually going to seize on something you said there in your, your last answer about uh, the gender roles in Near Dark. Uh, mm -hmm. As a professor with expertise in gender studies, I'd be really interested to hear how that intersects with readings of film. There are mm -hmm. some pretty well-known gendered archetypes in horror films, specifically like The, the Final Girl. Right. Um, first, so how are the two related? And second, do you see that changing as we started to see more inclusive teams behind the camera? Um, I think, yes, there have been changes. It's always like, it's always a sea change to some degree. Uh, but when I, for example, several semesters ago, I was teaching a course called Fembots, Fem Fatales and Final Girls. And it was about exactly that issue of, you know, the depiction of women in um, science fiction and horror films. And I know that the idea of the final girl 
is uh, frequently touted and deserves to be looked at in terms of uh, female empowerment and defeating the monster and the evil, except when you consider, I mean, it's become such a trope that the more reflexive meta attempts to do it now always address this issue that, well, if you're, the only way you'll survive as the final goal is if you're a virgin, which is very, very <laughs> which seems to be very, a very conservative point of view. And so, um, but there have been, you know, strides made in that. And I think that um, when I, for example, in Near Dark, uh, it is a role reversal in that you have a young, naive guy who is being um, seduced by a young, young female vampire, uh, a woman who's been turned into a vampire. And so much of that film, and I think it's interesting because it's a female director who also, she also co-wrote it. So it gives you a, just a different perspective on the currencies of power that are always at play in these kinds of things. And she dominates him in, uh, in the film. And it's a very interesting take on that, that notion because gender, you know, I, it's funny, I'm teaching uh, a suburban horror fiction class this semester. Uh, and I did suburban Gothic in film last semester. I figured we're all living through it, so why not take advantage of that, right? Um, and there is something about the monstrous feminine that is so embedded in our culture, going back to figures like Medusa, you know, the Medusa, and, and even not so much monstrous, monstrous, but if you talk about Eve or Pandora, it's always the woman getting blamed for bringing all the sin and evil into the world, and so, that goes, that is such a, a predominant sort of archetype. And even when you, so you jump fast forward to films like Hereditary, and I'm trying to think of the movie that I just saw. Ah, I want, oh, Relic, again, which is, which um, is, and the Babadook, where you have monstrous mothers again. So I appreciate the the changes that have been made and the attempts to sort of contextualize them or make it something more interesting than just simply some horrible mother, you know, a la Psycho, where the mother is the, is the reason for her son's, you know, uh, homicidal behavior. But I still think there's a long way to go in terms of that and re representation, not just in terms of uh, uh, gender, but, uh, you know, the diversity that exists the, in, our cult, in our world, you know. Um, Jordan Peele's Get Out, I think, is one of the best films I've ever seen that addresses the issue of race within the context of a horror film, and I think it's brilliant the way that he does it. Yeah, absolutely. I just, uh, I, just this week, actually, I watched a film called His House uh, mm. on, on Netflix, which is, which is one that, that sort of takes the, the refugee experience and certainly mm. interprets it as a, in, in more of a horror narrative that incorporates sort of like the the narrative of, of being in a strange land and all the the real horrors that come out of that in addition to of course the actual horror scares yeah uh, which is which is really fascinating um so speaking of the, the future of horror here uh we've seen in the last few years movies like searching or unfriended come play these things that where they incorporate like the actual screen or virtual reality or or all these different new possible digital frontiers do you think that mm -hmm. we're going to see uh a, a different way of defining movie genres or maybe different different things come out of that in the future 
Well, I think I'm waiting for a Zoom horror. <laughs> That'll be the next thing. I think that um, the great thing about it is because uh, horror, just as as a genre, um, you know, it's so enduring. Certain trends come and go, and uh, but as I said, fear is such a motivating factor in the human condition that if you find the things that people are fearful of, uh, if you t if there's a trend, a current trend, like for example. I remember when the Blair Witch uh, movie came out, uh, that was a sort of an astonishing uh, change. Uh, it was like a, it was a, a, an overwhelming overnight change. Suddenly you had this, a new genre, the found, found footage film, right? And subsequent to that, they've been trying to recapture the lightning in the bottle. And, um, you know, you can only watch so many paranormals before you say, okay, I, now I, I know where this is going. Uh, but when you do have something like that, when you have, um, I'm trying to think of the, so there was a movie about cell phones uh, that came out uh, and other, other things like that that are taking advantage, like you said, of the new technologies. I don't think anything should be off limits. I think the question is whether they're doing it just to do something different or whether there really is a purpose or they're making some sort of a commentary. Because it's not that everything has to be social commentary, but I find that's the thing that sticks with me more than just a gimmick for for example like shooting you can shoot an entire film uh on on a cell phone you know my part of my problem is i am a little old school i always joke with my students you know um yes you can watch uh you know <laughs> you can watch star wars on your phone but that wasn't what it was designed for you know there are all these people called cinematographers and production designers and the directors themselves you know, they envision this for this huge palette and this huge canvas. And when you're watching it, it's diminutive in a way that um, you can't appreciate the artistry. You know, so the other thing, so the other thing is, what are you, what are you watching your films on? I think is, to me, it's more, more significant than, or what is the format you're watching it in rather than the subject itself? Actually, that goes right into my next question. Uh, there are some directors like Christopher Nolan or uh, Scorsese that really, really prize the cinematic experience to the exclusion mm -hmm. of, of other things pretty openly. Uh, but yet you have others, you have you know, this sort of new business model of streaming services and you have people like David Fincher signing a deal of exclusive content with Netflix, you know, where mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's something that's really, really new. Uh, do you think that this sort of changing system of film distribution with streaming services is, is, is affecting how movies are made in a really profound way? Um, I, don't, I don't know that that's the case, although, you know, I, this is not a horror film, but when, when The Irishman, uh, the Scorsese film was coming out, I went to the premiere of it at the New York um, Film Festival and uh, watched it on a big screen and, and, you know, it was made for that with the sound and everything else. And knowing it was going to be on Netflix anyway, which I would be able, where I'd be able to see it, and I think that um, I think that it's an inevitability. Even if we put aside the the constraints now on people being able to gather together and go out, uh, there is something um, there is a value to me in being able to stream films. Uh, for example, I just um, I'm te I just finished teaching the book I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which Charlie Kaufman then did as a film. All, and it's only on Netflix. And uh, I just accepted that that was the reality. Um, and so 
going forward, I think it's going to be, I think it just makes more available, it makes better things available to more people. So whereas uh, somebody might not feel, might not want to go out and watch a film, they might watch it if it's available to them on a streaming service. And I think it's a great uh, opportunity for young filmmakers, for people who, where the distribution, you know, you can rely on showing something at a festival or whatever, but, but if something is literally available to you and you just have to click a button and it's streaming in your living room, I think it gives you the ability to see more things and not just the mainstream kind of, <laughs> the mainstream crap, but the, but the more interesting, uh, you know, the um, foreign films. I mean, I was able to, I, during, right at the start of the, the lockdown, I said, I'm going to get Criterion films. I'm going to stream that, you know, uh, because there are so many, there are so many things out there available to people. And I think the, the best and the worst aspect of this is people now have available to them amazing films by filmmakers who are not just uh, coming out of mainstream cultures, but, and the, which is the good thing. The bad thing is if you don't have anybody curating it for you, you don't know what to watch, you know, which is why I would have liked to have told all the people who watched uh, the Tiger King to watch some Kurosawa films or watch, you know, whatever, just, uh, but it's, pro it's a problem when you don't have anybody to uh, curate things for you, or at least offer, you know, some sort of and educated suggestions. Absolutely. Um, all right. One final question before the, the closing question here, really briefly. Uh, okay. do, you have a, <laughs> do you have a favorite film to watch around the sort of winter season, the holiday season? <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Uh, yes. I think it's changed every decade. It changes with me. Uh, but the favorite, one of the favorite films I love to watch around the holiday season uh, I'm not going to give you the standard answer. People say, oh, you know, it's a wonderful life or whatever. I, um, I've always liked, and I, I count it as a film, but I guess it's not a film. Well, it's a team. It was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, <laughs> which is a cartoon that was off when I was young. Um, probably The March of the Wooden Soldiers, which is a 1934 film. I have a very, you know, sometimes our favorite film is because you have an emotional attachment to it and a nostalgia is a very powerful thing and that's a film that I watched with my family we growing up um, it was always shown on Thanksgiving and it will be on again this Thanksgiving I would bet anything on channel 11 uh, and it's it has a Christmas uh, a definite Christmas element to it and it's it's the one that I watch and it's Laurel and Hardy who were to me two of the greatest film comedians that probably anybody listening to this has never seen or heard of. So that's another thing they should watch Laurel and Hardy because they are uh, hilarious. Well, that's the perfect segue for my final question here. Uh, our primary audience is Hofstra students, you know, college age. Uh, what are three movies that you think everyone in that age group should watch? Uh, I'd be particularly interested to hear any that were super important to you maybe at that age. Okay, uh, sure. The first one would be American Graffiti by uh, George Lucas. This is George Lucas when he still cared about creating interesting characters. And uh, not, that, not that I don't love uh, a lot of his films, but, um, and I always joke with my students, I say just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to. Fill the screen with things. 
Uh, American Graffiti was a film that he did. It was actually Francis Ford Coppola was a producer of it. It was an, in, you know, it was considered a kind of independent film at the time in the early 70s when they were trying to um, give young filmmakers uh, kind of carte blanche to do this. I think it's a brilliant film. Uh, I, I teach it all the time in RTF, RTVF 10 introduction to the film because it is in, in a way a perfect film. First of all, for people just starting college, it's about the decision of going off to college by several of the characters. It's about the end of an era. I mean, it's about the 1950s, even though it was made in the 70s. And so everything about it, the music, the cinematography, the, the script, it has, it, it manages to juggle four narratives at once and it's seamless in that regard. And it's got a lot of, you know, it's funny now, but at the time it had people like Ron Howard in it and Richard Dreyfuss who would go on to be big stars. Um, and it's such a great film and it's funny and it's kind of the model for a lot of the films that came after it, like Dazed and Confused or even Super Bad, or, you know, you can go through each generation, each decade and see the film that, but American Graffiti really is the first film. So I would definitely recommend that. Um, in keeping with the theme, because I can't help it, uh, it's the English professor and me. Uh, I think every, if, if people haven't seen it, they should watch The Graduate, the Mike Nichols film. That's a film about now getting out of college. <laughs> and it is, again, it captures perfectly the spirit, the zeitgeist of the 1960s, it's funny, uh, you know, the, the, the acting it is good. It raises a lot of interesting issues. When I teach it, I do talk about issues of gender in it and the depiction of, of uh, two of the characters, the, the mother character in it, Mrs., Mrs. Robinson and her daughter. And uh, it's very funny how people react to it now as opposed to the 60s. But, and again, it's such a good film in terms of everything that makes a good film in terms of the music, the, the, the production design, everything uh, in that film. And then if I were going to pick another one, ah, it would, I, I'm going to have to say I have a tie between uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Ex Machina. Two very different films, although I guess you could argue that they're both science fiction in a way, but uh, Charlie, um, sorry, uh, the Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman, but directed by Michel Gondry, is, is uh, again, another great film about, um, it's one of the most romantic films about, <laughs> about how ro romance is so problematic and maybe even ultimately impossible to maintain, but it's such a great film. It's, again, it's funny, um, and I like because it's got, it plays with linear narrative, and so, uh, it's a film you can watch five or six or seven times, and each time it's a different film. You see different things in it. Um, and then Ex Machina, which is Alex Garland, uh, it's a great film uh, because it deals with uh, the male gaze, and it's a it's it's a fairy tale. It's a it's a gothic film. It's a science fiction film. It kind of crosses genres, um, and it has amazing special effects. But, you know, a lot of times the special effects to me are, they're secondary to, uh, you know, to other things. In this film, it's so essential to creating a character that you believe is a, is a, a humanoid, but not human. Uh, and it's, and it's, again, the acting in it is great. It's a very quiet film. 
but the sound design is so good and the actors are great in it. So I think, yeah, that would be my, those would be my choices. You've really covered a wide range of uh, years and genres there. <laughs> I could have given you some silent films, but I figured oh, I'll just stick with those. Oh, of course, uh, Ex Machina especially is such a, an, an amazing movie. Um, bef before I, have to, I let you go, I do just have to ask, uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, Annihilation, which I believe is also Alex Garland's yeah. film, right? Um, it's funny. I yeah, Annihilation is a very interesting film. I don't I don't like it as much as Ex Machina, and I and it was actually based on a young adult fiction book. Um, and I don't know to what extent that matters. I haven't read the book, so uh, uh, and again, it raises a lot of interesting sort of metaphysical questions. Um, it's it's a little too um, tropey for me. There's some really, there's some really horrific moments and some really um, amazing special effects again, but I feel that, um, and it has, you know, females in the roles of, of uh, predominantly all females in the, in the main roles in the film, but um, it just didn't, um, I didn't feel it was as, uh, I don't know, I just didn't like it as much. It seemed to me like, um, kind of a, a mashup of uh, Terminator movies and Avatar, and I don't know, throw in a bunch of others. It was kind of a mixture, um, and ultimately it succeeds. I mean, it's not a bad film at all, and I would even watch it again, but uh, but that wouldn't be my first choice if I were going to be watching. Thank you for answering my last-minute curveball there. Um, <laughs> thank you for talking with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Mac. Thanks, thanks for asking me. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in the spring of 2021 with a new season where we'll highlight some Hofstra history through various perspectives, among other topics. In the meantime, we hope you remain healthy and safe and enjoy the holidays. If you come up with an idea, you can always email it to studentaffairs at hofstra.edu. That's studentaffairs at hofstra.edu. I'm Max Kutch, and this has been Pride Perspectives.